anything you can do to form relationships anywhere along the way on this journey. Community is key, whether it's you're at the early stages, you're writing the book or you're querying it or you're editing it or you're selling it, whatever. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, Sarah Nicholas. I hope you're enjoying the podcast and the stories authors are sharing with you. Today, we're going to be talking to historical crime novelist John Copenhaver. His book, Dodging and Burning, won the 2019 McCavity Award for Best First Mystery Novel and garnered Anthony Strand Critics' Barry and Lambda Award nominations. His second novel, The Savage Kind, will be published in October 2021. He writes a crime fiction review column for the Lambda called Blacklight and co-hosts on the House of Mystery radio show. He lives in Richmond, Virginia. So please welcome John to the show. Hello. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hi. We're going to start by going all the way back to the beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing? And then how long did it take from then before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? I really, um, I think I've always, I know this maybe is a cliche thing to say, but I, I feel like I've always been a writer in some way. I mean, I think I was telling stories in different ways, even when I was a kid. And then when I was in middle school, I, uh, you know, made home movies, which is kind of hysterical. It wasn't until high school that I really started writing, you know, writing my stories down and thinking this was the, the way to go. So, you know, it's kind of always been with me. I think the, the point at which I was like, okay, I want to do this. Uh, you know, I really want to try to do this professionally was probably college. It, it really right as I was entering college, I, um, I went to Davidson and I won a um, honor scholarship based on my writing and also won um, a writing award for my school. And I thought, okay, this is pointing me in a direction. I like doing this. I seem to be doing it, you know, okay. <laughs> and, um, and so I just, I took every creative writing class, whatever genre that Davidson had to offer. And I just continued like through my um, MA program at Breadloaf School of English. I took all the creative writing there. I was like, okay, you know what I need to do? I need to just get an MFA. Clearly, this is something I like. And um, so I wound up at George Mason in D.C. to get my MFA in the early 2000s. And I think that was sort of, you know, MFA is a professional degree. So you're like, okay, are you going to really do this thing? And, and then you graduate from the MFA. And then you're like, oh, okay, what, what now? <laughs> and I think that's the point where I, I did a novel length thesis for my MFA. I was proud of it. I even queried some with it and I even got some good feedback. But at some point I felt like it needed to be deeply revised. And I didn't feel like, I felt like it was my learning mechanism and I wanted to start something new. And so uh, it was about that time, um, when I was a little after that time, maybe a year after that time that I started dodging and burning. It took me about three, three and a half years to write. you know, I don't know why I decided, okay, you know what I want to do for my first novel. I want to write a novel from different perspectives in a historical time period that has a complex mystery that has to unfold, <laughs> honestly, through different, two different time periods. Because one is, uh, of course, 1945, 
And then the other one is the early 2000s, sort of looking back at this time period. Sounded like you wanted to make it easy on yourself. Exactly. Like, why, <laughs> why? Why? Why did I do that? And I, I'll tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you why I'm fascinated by that sort of complexity. I think I'm really drawn to complex storytelling because um, I did it. I kind of did it again with Savage Con. <laughs> so who knows? I'm, I'm just a glut for punishment. But yeah, so, you know, that's kind of got me to the point of writing, dodging and burning. Let's find out a little bit about how you learned more about the publishing industry, like how it works, how to go about it, how to query, how to find a literary agent. As far as I understand it, usually in MFAs, they don't do a whole lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I'll be frank with you. I think that's a problem. And I even wondered it in my MFA, why aren't we, it, this is a professional mm -hmm. degree. Why aren't we talking more about sort of, you know, the professional side of it, the nuts and bolts, of course, you know, the artistry should be first and foremost, but to ha have very little to next to nothing, um, in terms of that, uh, I'll be honest with you. I really didn't. And I really had to figure out all, all on my own. And I mean, it's not like there's a class where we, we sat down and we wrote a query letter together and talked about it. I mean, that would have been amazing. It would have been like one class period and we never did it. So, you know, I think that's, a, I think, it, I think it's a failing. I think MFA programs should do that. I think actually all MFAs, not just uh, writing MFAs should do professional sort of elements to it. So, I mean, maybe it's not the most exciting thing to teach, but it is so valuable for your students. I'm a teacher too. So I, I think a lot about that. Uh, from that angle. So, um, yeah, I, I figured it out on my own and, you know, I figured it out by like everyone else figured things out by Googling and reading examples. Um, I think I initially bought a book and it was even kind of outdated and figured the most up-to-date information is probably going to be online. Mm -hmm. And, and it, that was still when you were sending in manuscripts. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, now? That snail mail. Well, that was actually when I was learning about it. So that was the that was the novel that's on the shelf. That was the thesis. That novel I was still snail mailing. So that was like two thousand five, and and then shortly thereafter, like a year or two later, it was everything was it was like kind of right on the cusp of that. So I think that I, I mean ultimately I had to find out on my own. My MFA didn't teach me much about the professional side of things. Mm -hmm. I remember this is like a side note, but. We did a workshop at AWP when it was in Tampa mm -hmm. that was for pitch wars. And it was all about writing query letters and pitching how to pitch your book effectively. It's great. And for anyone who doesn't know, AW AWP is primarily MFA focused. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that they thought it would be very popular because they put it in a, in a pretty small room. Mm -hmm. And the, the room was so full. People were sitting on <laughs> every square inch of floor. People were out in the hallway listening in. So yeah, I definitely think that's something that MFAs could do a little bit better. I know some of them do and some of them really don't. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Can you break down for us your, you know, querying history all the way up until signing your first book contract? So you queried that first book from your MFA. Mm -hmm. How long did you query that for? Oh, so the the first, the, the thesis was about a year. So not, not a long time. I mean, I guess some people think that's a long time, but I would say just your expectations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it was, uh, yeah, it was about a year. I got some good feedback actually, but I just didn't feel like, I mean, you know, you just kind of know. 
it wasn't really up to snuff. Mm -hmm. I, I just didn't feel like it was a strong enough manuscript, to just analytically myself. I think that then, you know, I went through the writing of the other one and things had changed. You know, we're talking about three years later, I was teaching full time. You know, I was writing a lot of this in the summer. And then that's when, you know, suddenly things were all online. I was doing most of it that way. And I, I changed my attitude a little bit toward how I queried agents. Sort of what I had been taught up to that point was that you needed to do sort of this deep research on what agent was a good fit for you. Um, read bo other books by that agent represents. I realized at some point that first of all, just because an agent represents the type of book doesn't mean they only want that type of book. They may be looking to diversify. So you may be have this one impression of what they want based on what you know what their list looks like. I found that ultimately it was a waste of my time, and that it was a little bit like you just needed to. It was a little bit like speed dating, and you need to treat it a little more like speed dating. Now. That's not to say you shouldn't do research on what the agent is actually looking for. And their websites were a great place to go do that. So that's what I would do. I, was go, I would go read their websites, see what they were looking for. It seemed like the most current thing that th they were interested in. If I were a good fit in some way, you know, a mystery, uh, historical, my books almost all have uh, LGBTQ themes in them. So if they hit one or two of those two things, I would send it to them. And after working on my query a long time, which we'll get to that, I guess. But, you know, I think that, you know, I would just send them and I wouldn't worry too much about whether it was exactly the right fit. And I, at first I, I was sort of pitching to really the best agents out there. And I figured that I'm new and I didn't know I need an agent who was also probably going to be a little bit on the new side, but I would love some experience, you know? <laughs> I didn't want them to be brand, brand new because I was brand new and it would be a little bit like, you know, who, how, how would we figure this thing out? But I adjusted my expectations there too. And I think that's kind of what, you know, all those things kind of came together. And my current agent, Andy Bomke, who was amazing, she was just that. She had left a, a larger agency, agency and she was now out on her own and she was building her list. She liked what I liked. I remember reading, you know, some of the authors of her favorite authors and thinking, oh, those are mine too. So I sent my manuscript or my query to her. I think she was taking maybe, I can't remember. I think she, the first chapter or something like that. And she said, I'd like to see more. And that was super exciting because that's, you know, <laughs> you're making a long list. And, you know, my, at that point, my principle is like 10 at a time. And so as soon as one came in, I would send out another, but I would kind of keep 10 out, out there. And so she wanted to see the full manuscript. She read it about three months later, got back to me with a lot of notes. She said, I'm not going to take you on yet, but if you're open to revising this, please like, let me know. And I was like, yes. And the reason why I said yes is her comments were so smart. And I knew at that moment that she was going to make this book a better book, even if I, she didn't take me, if I just took her comments <laughs> and used them that it was a kind of gift. And I mean, Annie has been continued to be that giving as an agent. Um, I don't think that's true for all agents, but she certainly has been. And um, I think in a lot of ways has molded me and shaped me as, as a writer. For that reason, you know, that was lovely and, and went, went really, went smoothly. But I did have to, be, you know, take the feedback and think about it. And uh, that's a lesson for anyone. Don't just because you get you don't get it on the first go around. Look at it and think about like what they're saying and does it have resonance with you? And you know, will it make it better if you apply that feedback and go forward from there?
So about how many queries do you think you sent out for that book? It wasn't a ton. I, I would say maybe maybe 30 to 40. Okay. Yeah, I think it wasn't. I'll, I'll be honest with you, that was not the hardest. That's not wasn't the hardest part of the journey. All right. <laughs> the harder part came later. <laughs> okay, so after you signed with your agent, what did your journey look like to signing that first book contract? I, you know, I didn't really know Annie that well at that point. And so, you know, she sent me a contract and I actually had it looked at uh, by a lawyer friend and it was, you know, fine, <laughs> but I, I didn't really know what I was looking at. And so I think, you know, I wanted to be safe um, and protect myself. I think we changed a few things, but it was all kind of minor stuff ultimately. And um, I signed that contract and then went through another round of edits with Annie and I think maybe even yet again, another set of edits. And, and then she was like, okay, I think we're ready. Um, and maybe about a year later, you know, I think we're ready to start shopping this, this book. It's really as good as it's going to get. And we both felt good about it. So uh, that's, and then we started, we started the process, the process and she, of course, is going to start pitching the, I guess the big five, or I guess there maybe a big six at that point, but she was going to start big and then start looking at independence after that. And then that's, that's when sort of the hard parts happening. <laughs> I got a lot of rejections and a lot of rejections that were not helpful rejections. In other words, they were, we, we love it. Um, we don't know how to sell it, mm -hmm. which is because it was a literary mystery with a, with LGBTQ themes. And I think that, you know, they would say it's either too literary for us or it's too mystery for us. And I kept on thinking it's really too gay for you is what you're saying. <laughs> I could, there was nothing to act on. It was just, you know, because they weren't saying it was bad. Um, occasionally people, there would be a rejection that was like, I don't, he uses too many metaphors. <laughs> I was like, well, all right, but that's just not a good fit, right? It's not mm -hmm. like, actually, that's useful because you're like, okay, that's clearly, that would have not, we would have not gotten along, you know? Uh, there's very little in the terms of like, you know, revise this, shift this around. I did go through one scenario with a very hopeful editor and she gave me feedback. We had a whole phone call. She really wanted to see some changes with the, how the novel opens I addressed those changes. Once again, always making sure that this was really making it better. And it was. And then I, honestly, I sent it to her and I, I, I heard nothing. Oh. I didn't say I sent it to her, I'd rather Annie sent it to her and we heard nothing, heard nothing, heard nothing. And then finally we, she said no. And I felt she didn't really, I just didn't feel like she read it. And it wasn't like a kind of projection that felt like, a, it felt like, you know, I'm not going to get this through our editorial board. So I'm not even going to read it. It was weird. It was a weird, it was weird. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, I don't know what was going on behind the scenes. I felt that it was a situation where this was like a junior editor and she just didn't have, I think she probably liked the project, but didn't feel like she had the ability to see it through or find it, find, you know, fight for it. Uh, what happened is that we put it on the shelf. We, you know, after I think maybe about 30 or 40 different places, it's really hard for me to remember. So it might've been more than that. We weren't, you know, I think Andy said, I don't want to just send it anywhere. Let's wait. And maybe you're working on another book. Let's see if maybe we lead with that book. And this can be a two book deal or they'll want the second one after the first one. Mm -hmm. And so I did finish that, that book. 
And it was an early version of the Savage Kind, and it needed a lot of work. And I just was like, look, I, this was, it was going to be years more of work on the thing. I was like, let's find a home for dodging and birding. I just find some home for it. That's basically what I said. And so we went back out again, but the, you know, the, the ever shifting field of, of publishing had changed and mm-hmm. new opportunities were there and, pe- and there was Pegasus and Pegasus got it. They got it. They understood what I was trying to do. They saw the, the literary and mystery as benefiting each other instead of counseling each other out. They weren't, you know, skittish about the, the gay content, which you know, is pretty tame, frankly. And I think that um, they just they saw how it could it would work. You know, they're a pretty robust, robust, small publisher. And um, I was just a good fit. I mean, it was so well edited by that point. We didn't have to do tons more <laughs> to it because <laughs> we've been through a lot of edits. And then it went kind of quickly at that point. It was like it was about a year and then it was out. So um, it went fast. At that nice. point. Yeah. Happy ending. <laughs> yeah, I definitely feel like the mystery landscape has changed quite a bit in the last couple of years so yeah 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 i think it's opening up a lot more Mm -hmm. sort of what that even is and the genre isn't so rigid it is time can you read your successful query letter for us absolutely dear editor or whoever i'm sending it to i guess dear agent in this case mystery writer bunny prescott receives an envelope with no return address It contains a photo of the body of a beautiful murdered woman, a photo Bunny has seen before, 55 years ago in 1945. Believing that her estranged childhood friend Ciola may have mailed it to her, Bunny writes to her, I remember your last words to me. Bunny, you're a murderer. To this day, I believe it. I really do. Alternating between Bunny's and Ciola's accounts, the story behind the photo unfolds during the summer of 1945. Jay Greenwood, a wounded war photographer, has returned to Royal Oak, Virginia from the front in Belgium. He shows the photo to his friends, Bunny, then a small town society girl of 20, and Ciola, a headstrong tomboy of 12, whose brother, Robbie, is missing in action. Jay tells the girls that he stumbled on the corpse in the nearby woods, but when he leads them to the scene, it has vanished. They soon discover that a local woman, Lily Vellum, is missing. The mystery of Lily Vellum casts a spell over young Ciela, echoing the salacious stories in the pulp detective magazines that her missing brother read to her before her parents. Fearing Robbie's homosexual tendencies, forced him to enlist to make a man of him. Jay, too, mourns the loss of Robbie, his friend and secret lover. The three investigate their murder on their own, and Bunny finds a clue that takes her to wartime Washington, D.C., where she is forced to come to terms with the truth about Jay, his homosexuality. Her spiteful response to his revelation sets off a series of events that brings violence and tragedy for Jay and decades of estrangement between the two women. United in old age, Bunny and Ciola confront each other about Jay's fate and discover that the photo of Lily is the key to a dark secret, a secret that gives them a deeper understanding of the psychological toll the war took on the young men they loved and on themselves. Dodging and Burning is unique in that it addresses the love between two men through compelling 
viewpoints of two straight female characters bridging the gap between niche of gay and lesbian literature and the popular mystery genre. I have an MA, MA in literature from Breadloaf, completed my MFA in fiction from George Mason University, and edited a literary magazine called Phoebe. Dodging and Burning placed as a quarter finalist in the Amazon Breakthrough Novel Award, and I've been working on it since and feel that I have now brought it to a new level. I look forward to hearing from you and hope you will be willing to look at the entire 95,000 word manuscript. Thanks so much for your time. Sincerely, John. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, for our listeners, if you process that kind of information better visually, you can find a link to the text in the description. So how has your experience been since signing your contract, especially were there any surprises along the way? You know, I think that I appreciated. I think this is a positive surprise. I appreciated how collaborative uh, Pegasus was, particularly about the cover, which I, uh, you know, cared a lot about and uh, wanted input on <laughs> because I think that it is part of the artistic experience that the reader is having. And if the cover is dull, it's like you're starting off in a bad, a bad relation, bad sort of, you know, first <laughs> impression. And so I just really wanted to make sure the cover was a sharp, professional. Um, I mean, all their covers were, so I wasn't particularly worried. Uh, but I also wanted to make sure that it seemed like it, you know, reflected what was on the inside of the book, that it wasn't a gorgeous cover, but then seemed to have nothing to do with the contents. And that was true for the titling of both books that I really wanted to make sure that the titles seemed to reflect the contents. A lot of mystery fiction, the titles are kind of, they're kind of general <laughs> or interchangeable a little bit sometimes. And so I, I really, I didn't like that. So I, I really wanted to have that. And so, you know, Pegasus was a surprise to me, I guess, because they really wanted to collaborate. It wasn't just they were like, oh, okay, we'll begrudgingly collaborate. They really wanted to know. And so I think that that was, you know, a delightful surprise, uh, really very little in terms of negative surprises. I, th- I think that certainly when you get to the process of promoting your book, that was the biggest learning curve that probably happened during the process. And I still think I'm learning that. I, I think it's ever evolving too. So as soon as you think you understand what you need to be doing, you need to be doing something else. And COVID has you know, added a whole new wrinkle to that. Mm-hmm. And I think that you, you certainly have to continue to keep yourself educated, try new things. Some things fail, you know, it's okay. Some things succeed. Uh, I think anything you can do to form relationships anywhere along the way on this journey, community is key, whether it's your at the early stages, you're writing the book or you're querying it or you're editing it or you're selling it, whatever. Just that idea of community, doing this thing alone is way too hard. So I think that's that's something I've constantly benefited from uh, personally. It is time for the quick round. I call it author DNA. It's just classifications that we put writers in. Are you a pantser or a plotter? Yes. <laughs> I'm a bit of both. I, I pants and then and then st- I wake up one day and realize I need to get the plot in shape. So <laughs> it's about a page, somewhere between page 80 and 100, I become a plotter. <laughs> Sounds like you're like a reluctant plotter. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? I am an overwriter. Absolutely. 100%. Do you prefer to write in the morning or at night? 
I actually think I have more energy in the morning, but for whatever reason, I've been tending to be more creative later in the day. Um, I don't know if this is like getting to middle age and suddenly my biorhythms are changing or something, but it is changing. So I'm certainly not a late night. I got to get my sleep. So I think probably about, about seven, I'm done with whatever. <laughs> when you're starting a new story, do you typically start with character first or plot or concept or something else? I usually have sort of uh, a char- characters blended in with a concept or sort of a starting point, a situation, I guess is the best way of putting it. But it's super character dependent. And my whole, everything I'm about is character. It's really where I come from. The plot, I love a great, complex and intriguing plot. But if the characters aren't there, I don't, I don't care. So I really do start with character and maybe kind of an interesting situation. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> when you are writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? Sound. I actually, uh, ever since I was in high school, but have been hugely into film scores. Um, I have a big collection of film scores. And so I kind of score my, in fact, if I'm in a certain mood, like I want something dark, I, I'll, I'll put on a dark film score, you know, just depending on kind of what, you know, what mood I'm trying to get into, what it might sort of conjure up for me. I can't do music with words though. When it comes to the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? I'm a get it right it, who wishes I were more of a get it down, <laughs> but I am a, I fiddle with sentences when I need to just be writing this stuff, but I, I can't help it. I don't know. What else. I don't know. I, I just, I'm trying to just accept that to who I am as a writer. <laughs> <laughs> what tools or software do you use to draft? I am a huge uh, fan of Scrivener and a huge uh, critic of Word. <laughs> I hate Word. <laughs> I like Google Docs for general, like everyday stuff. And then my writing happens in, in Scrivener. Yeah, Scrivener is great, especially for what I'm doing with like lots of different characters and mm-hmm. complex plots. You can create character cards in, in Scrivener so you can keep all their details straight. And it's all like in one in one place. So I'm not hunting around a drive or, or, or a folder for all this information. It's just right at my fingertips. And it allows you to import pictures and links and everything. So um, it does take, when you're making the transition over to it, it's, it's not always fun. But once you're in it, then, you know, I won't go back. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? Oh, do I enjoy? Hmm, that's interesting. I think probably I enjoy revising more because it's making it all sort of shape up nicely, but I don't think I get as excited about it. Mm-hmm. I think that the discovery phase of, of drafting is the real, have, has the real sort of moments of like, where you discover something even about yourself through your writing. And I think at my core, that's really why I write, but I guess the enjoyment comes a little more when you can shape it up and you're about to present, getting it ready to present to the world. <laughs> do you write in sequential order? Or do you hop around? I write sequentially, but my imagination hops around and that's probably why I have to tether it to a, I have to tether. In other words, my stories aren't necessarily sequential, but the way I write them has to be, or I would really lose, I would, I would become untethered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I do write them that way. Um, that's not to say, but when I revise, I'll have to go back and pull a lot, you know, pull stuff out, pull and rearrange stuff. So that's just sort of initially how it occurs. And final quick round question. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? Oh, introvert. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. The show is called Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. We already heard your query. Now we're going to talk about that second cue. 
What were some of the worries that you had on your journey? And were they realized? Did you overcome them? How did they shake out? My fears all along, really, were they kind of a complex web of them. One was that is someone going to try really understand what I'm trying to do? And I've always felt like what I was trying to do was to, among others, who are, I'm not like inventing this idea, but to elevate a mystery to kind of literary complexity in terms of character. And my favorite books tend to have like a really strong plot, but richness of characters. I was just trying to emulate what I love, you know, I think that that, but that's not necessarily like always good to have that. That's not always a great marketing approach. Let's put it that way. Because once you step outside of a a, a very well-defined box, people sometimes don't know what to do with you. And my fear proved itself out. I mean, it was, it was a, it was a justifiable fear because that's exactly what happened. And then on the other side of it, I won awards. So, you know, once you get through it, you, you realize you, then you stand out when you're on the other side of that. I think that's a fear that I've had. I think, you know, we all have fears in terms of, am I good enough for this? And, you know, am I going to be able to, I'm, I'm, I'm fooling people with my talent. I'm just like, you know, but the truth is if you're, if you're dedicated enough to pull it off and attempt to fool people and then you, you know, you're probably talented enough, you know, like it's not, you shouldn't worry about that all that much You should because you should just worry about getting the work done. But, you know, your mind always thinks you're, I'm not fooling people. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Imposter syndrome, that kind of thing. The thing that you're always sort of the existential question you're always asking yourself was uh, to me, like, you know, what if you never publish? And my, my mom actually said that to me. And I, I thought, wow, that's a vote of confidence for you. <laughs> And I think what she was saying is like, what does this mean for you? Like, if you don't publish, are you going to stop writing? I was like, well, no. I mean, I'm just always going to try to be published. I didn't know what else to do. I just felt like it was what I had to do. And I still feel that way. I just keep doing it. I think that's actually a good question to ask yourself, though. Does it really bring you joy or you find real meaning in the process? Because most of it is process. And even when you you win an award or get nominated for awards, that's great. But you start realizing that that's not really what brings you meaning as a writer, that you, you really need to find the meaning in this sort of activity of it. And of course, when you have a reader sort of have a more intimate response to your work that feels, you, you feel a little seen, you know, I think those are the moments that are more powerful than this sort of broad, you know, kind of feedback. And so that's kind of something of kind of a fear, I guess I had that acceptance that has sort of played out in interesting ways. I get more, much more excitement out of an, an, a nice email than I do necessarily a nomination. I get excited about the nomination because it might mean, you know, this might be good for you know, opening doors or that external thing. But in terms of what it means in terms of art, I think that it really is that sort of more intimate feedback. Mm-hmm. I think we all continue to fear like, what if, no one wants to read what we're writing and, you know, that didn't go away. It just, it will never go away. I think, <laughs> I think even people who sell tons of books think the next one is not going to, you know, it's going to disappoint. Mm-hmm. So if you get comfortable with that idea and you get uh, move away from the idea that there's going to be one day when <laughs> you're going to be like, yeah, I got this. <laughs> yeah. And you know, your, your confidence will grow. Sure. Yeah. But I think, <laughs> I think, I don't think the doubt goes away. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now we're going to talk about the third cue. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that you think is kind of fun or different or interesting or unique? 
Um, well, I think probably I've already mentioned it, which is sort of my obsession with film scores and playing them to see create certain moods. Is to, it's, that's kind of quirky, I think. Uh, maybe other people do it, but I don't know. I wish that I were someone who wrote in this sort of very every day at a certain time. I just my life has never really allowed me to do that. I think teaching, especially high school, it's just the energy sometimes isn't there, even if the time is. Um, if the time's there, that's great, but a lot of times the time isn't there. So you just have to write when you can. Um, and so there's glorious vacations, you know, over the time. But I don't think there's anything particularly unusual about about that. I, I do obsess over character names, but I'm sure other authors do the same thing. So no character name is not, you know, thoughtfully chosen. <laughs> <laughs> almost, almost to the point of being ridiculous. But <laughs> <laughs> What were some of the biggest mistakes that you made along the way that you might like to share with listeners so they don't fall into the same trap? Depending on where you are, I think that... I mean, I guess I made mistakes every step of the way, but I think the mistake that I wish I could go back and, and change again is to question whether I was getting everything out of my MFA that I needed to be getting and push more and advocate for myself more. I was frightened to do that. I will say, I want to say one thing. Uh, it's not the same program today. So this is my experience years ago. It's it's not the same program. So I'm not criticizing as it is. I'm criticizing as it was. But I didn't. And I think that I wasted time by not sort of saying, hey, I need more here. You need to give me more. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Or if, or if they weren't then pivoting to something else. I think there are other options and, and more interesting options even low residency options out there that can be really good. So I don't know. I think there, and I had some fellow people that were in the same boat and, and wanted more and we found each other. We supported each other, but sometimes I'm, you know, you get, you get to the point, is this, is this, if it feels wrong, probably something's not completely right. Mm-hmm. I think that was probably the, the biggest, biggest, I think I wish I had gone back and, and done differently. I mean, I would like to say, I wish I, you know, had somehow, spent less time writing my novels than I did. I don't know. I don't know if I really can. <laughs> yeah. So it may just be the way I do it. So I'm not sure. Tune in. <laughs> see, see if I've changed my methods. I guess why I'm plotting more to begin with. Just when you write at the beginning, I, I don't know if I, I could do that. I think it starts dying on the vine before you even flesh it out. So, so similar to that, can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons, whether it's writing related or publishing related, that you learned on your journey to publication? Yeah, I mean, this one, it's probably you've heard it before, but I guess it's a two-parter. One is feedback is your friend, but only feedback that feeds you and feeds your project. So the trick here is that you need to be open, but you also need to be really thoughtful and really critical of the feedback being handed to you. So is this feedback going to support, does this feedback speaking to my project, not to me, first of all, is it constructive? Um, Is it specific? Does it make it better? And if it does, then you need to be open to it. (laughs) You you need to be open to changing things and not don't fall too in love with your words, your sentences, your, your ideas. But I think that if it feels more about the person, more about the person's perspective, giving it, or if it feels vague or just kind of, you know, mean spirited, you really just need to be, just leave it. It's not going to help you. 
And I think that's, that's key. Sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to know which is which, particularly in the moment. I think if you're going into a workshop situation, have a moment, build in time for you to go reflect on what was said to you before you react. Mm-hmm. I think that can be really helpful. Yeah, that's good. All right. I call this the acknowledgements portion of the podcast. This is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. Who are some of the people or organizations who helped you along the way and how? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've mentioned my, my agent, Andy Bobke has been amazing. Another organization that's really amazing is Lambda Literary. And if you identify as um, LGBTQ, it is going to support you and your writing. It's a warm and helpful community. They do a great writer's retreat as well. And I actually write reviews, I review crime fiction for them. I think that uh, certainly they have been super supportive of me. And I think when I did a workshop at Lambda, I got some of that sort of real you know, clear, helpful, concrete feedback that I've been hungering for. <laughs> also, of course, you know, all the support I've had from my publisher. I don't think everyone has a strong relationship with their publisher, but I do. And I've been thankful for that. Awesome. All right. Can you tell us a little bit about your latest release, The Savage Kind? Absolutely. So The Savage Kind is what I like to think of as a sympathetic coming of age story for the femme fatale. I really like exploring this sort of archetypical character through uh, two teenage girls in 1948 DC as they solve a murder of a classmate, um, deal with their complex feelings towards each other and their glamorous uh, English teacher because all English teachers are glamorous <laughs> and then sort of start kind of a interesting movement into their own criminal behavior. A, a lot of the book is looking at young women, young queer women during that time period and thinking about what they were up against with the conservatism of the time period and in the fifties ahead of them. So, and it's a mystery. So <laughs> it's fun. Very fun. All right, John, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with everyone. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of John's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about him and his books. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, tell your friends, or share this episode on social media. And if you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That is Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.